Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The city's premier film festival, that's the 28th annual Whitaker St. Louis International Film Festival, actually kicked off last night. But if you missed getting to see Noah Baumbach's marriage story at the Tivoli, don't despair. That particular screening is over, but the festival runs through November 17th. And there is, as always, much to see. Here to tell us about the highlights is Chris Clark. He's the artistic director of Cinema St. Louis, which puts on the festival. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to be here. And for those of you listening, if there's a film you're excited about at this year's festival, uh, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, Chris Clark, last year you said on our show that 2018's program was the biggest festival that Cinema St. Louis had ever produced. I think there were more than 400 films. So yes. how does this year compare to that? We we dialed back significantly at only 389 films Oh, that's this year. it. You guys are a bunch of slackers. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, from 63 countries, you know, sprawled out over 11 days in seven different locations on nine screens or 10 screens. I, I, I lose track. So it can seem daunting to somebody who's never been to a festival or something like that before. And there's just no way you can see everything um, because we're not a destination like Telluride or Sundance or something like that, where you're going there and that's your what you're why you're there to see films all day, like a yeah. vacation. Most of us still have jobs to yeah, go to in addition and lives to watching and movies. Responsibilities and children yeah. and classes and you know what have you. But it you know it's it's a hard choice. Ben and I were talking about this um, out in the waiting room earlier that you have to make a, an extra effort to go. Um, but it's still fun. Um, yeah. Like Marriage Story is a big, huge end of the year Oscar headed, you know, star laden thing that people flock to and it's gonna be out in a couple weeks anyway and those are kind of our tent poles that you know draw some attention but then stuffed in between you know the other 380 something things is great discovery from all over the world and Mm -hmm. the you know leading people doing cinema on the planet right now tell us one film that you're just particularly excited about this year it's a hidden gem, um, a, a Czech comedy called Winter Flies. That, Czech meaning they made it in the Czech Republic? Yes. Okay. Yes. And it's uh, about two um, wily adolescents. They're not even teenagers. I think they're like 15 and 13. Uh, they steal a car and they're driving across country. And this isn't really giving any of the plot away because it's in the trailer too. Yeah. It's told partly in flashback because the one of the boys has been arrested and he's in a police station. He's telling the policeman, his version of the events, and then the flashbacks tell what really happened. Um, It's just a great bit of fun. So this is a bit of a romp? Yes. Okay, well, on a completely different note, um, (laughs) we're also joined today by Ben Shawley. He's a professor of digital cinema arts at Lindenwood University, and he's also the director of a documentary that's screening as part of the Show Me Cinema category, which features films with strong Missouri connections. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, Ben's film is Through the Cracks. Let's listen to the opening of that film. It took a couple hours, but I think what finally got everybody to agree was uh, one guy who was not the foreman stood up and said, we all agree that he did it. We agree that it was premeditated. Can you think of any worst crime that that could have been committed it was a six-year-old girl who was taken from her home and essentially tortured and then brutally killed and we all agreed on that 
And then he said, well, if this is the worst crime that's been committed, the worst penalty that we can give is the death penalty. Don't you think this is what this case deserves? Now that film is Through the Cracks, which plays at the St. Louis International Film Festival. It's playing this Sunday. Now, Ben Shawley, this documentary goes deep on a case that I imagine many St. Louisans remember from 2002. That's the murder of Casey Williamson. And for those of us who weren't living here at this point, um, tell us what happened um, in this case. So this happened actually shortly after I moved back to St. Louis, and I and I remember it very well. Um, this was a case where Casey was six years old, and she was um, in her home, and there was a man named Johnny Johnson who had been staying there and sleeping on the couch. And one morning, um, Casey's dad came looking for her, couldn't find her um, downstairs in the morning. She'd woken up. He'd gone upstairs, came back down. She was gone. Johnny was gone. And as it turned out, Johnny took her um, to... Um, to like an old abandoned mine or old abandoned glass factory in Valley Park and and killed her there. Um, and so this this uh, film tells that story and then I, I tried to go deeper into the story than I think um, a lot of the you know a lot of the contemporary coverage did. So your focus really was not so much on Casey's death, although um, you opened with that and, and man, it was just it was so hard to watch. but but your focus was really on the jury's death sentence for her killer, uh, Johnny Johnson. What did you learn about him in the course of, of reporting out this uh, documentary? Well, I think that um, it's, what I learned about him was that he was deeply troubled, and I think that um, you know the the title "Through the Cracks" comes from something that one of the public defenders said, which is just that he like his story is very tragic, um, and in a lot of ways he just sort of fell through the cracks of the system, and and his mental illness was very severe. I think the <clears throat> the the reason that this film seemed like a story worth telling is because I was talking to somebody else who um, was you know talking about the death penalty and saying that you know it seems like it's used disproportionately on minorities and seems like, you know, there are innocent people executed. And so he was opposed to the death penalty, but he also said that he feels like there are some cases where there are monstrous people who, who maybe deserve to be killed. And I thought that was an interesting, interesting take. And I felt like this is one of those cases where mm -hmm. the public reaction was, was that this man is a monster. And I thought, you know, going along with sort of what that juror had said, if, you're, if you want to test your feelings about the death penalty, a case like this is going to sort of push it to the extreme to find out if you really support it or are really opposed to it. Because there's just not much redeeming about this man who committed it. You can't look at it and say, oh, this is this is a life worth saving. You have to really look at, am I willing to take a life? It's a, it's a very sobering film. Chris Clark, what made you choose this for this year's, what made Cinema St. Louis choose it for this year's festival? Uh, it's actually a film that we had screened this summer in our uh, local St. Louis Filmmaker Showcase event, and it's one of the films that graduated uh, to be invited to this event. Tell me how that works. Are you sort of testing them out on audiences? No, no, it's okay. an entirely different event, um, but it's all dedicated for local filmmakers, and we always mm -hmm. take uh, two dozen or so of the very best of the best, like Top Gun, and, and bring them to you know a second local screening uh, with higher prominence um, in the St. Louis International Film Festival. We've worked with Ben and known Ben mm -hmm. for a very long time, um, but this film earned its spot in both festivals because it's just so well crafted, um, and on the you know surface a very grim um, topic and hard to di digest. But it's not really you know exactly what you would expect from. It's not a crime documentary per se. It goes deeper, like Ben said, you know, into the psychology of the people that were discussing it, the law enforcement, everyone's you know 
motives and, and feelings were just so amped up because of the severity of the crime, but it really clouded everything along the way. And, the, you know, the, the sad reality is that this poor young man had just fallen through the cracks of the mental health system, like so many people do, and should never have been there, should never have been on that couch, and that girl should never should have died. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, endless sadness there. You know, yeah. You know, other films are happier, I, I promise you. <laughs> They're but, not but it's, a, but, it's, a, but it's, it's a important. Su super yeah. well-done film, and, mm -hmm. you know, deserves to be seen. The story deserves to be told. Now, Ben, you also interviewed Johnny Johnson's sister. Let's listen to that. The lack of success of a psychiatric defense is due in, in great part to the, to the inability of the psychiatric profession to, to say, yes, this is it. This is irrefutable evidence that this guy didn't know what he was doing or didn't know and appreciate it. If you can't pick apart a psychiatric report, you know, then, then you're not that much of a lawyer. Um, and that was actually St. Louis County uh, prosecuting attorney Bob McCullough. And he's providing his perspective on how, you know, give him a mental health report and he can still find a way to, to get this person executed for committing a heinous crime. Um, how big a frustration was it for the people that you interviewed that you can have a guy with such a well-documented history of this stuff? And really then when it comes to a jury, it sometimes doesn't even matter. I think the reason why um, why this case was something that came to my attention is because it was something that kept everyone involved up all night afterwards. You know, I think they really they lost sleep. They just kept on sort of dwelling on on the tragedy all around. Um, and I think that um, what's interesting is that you know I I tried as much as I could to interview people on all sides of this issue and people on both sides of this case. And and you really succeeded in that. You got the family of the victim. You also got the family of the killer. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that everybody was able to tell their part of the story, and I did my best to represent all of those perspectives in the film. And what I think is interesting when you do that is even though there are certain issues that you know, you're never going to get the defense attorneys to agree with the prosecuting attorneys about the death penalty, for instance. But the one, the one thing that did come through as consensus across the board, everybody I talked to, was that it never should have happened, as Chris was saying. And I think that it was interesting how often I heard both the prosecutors and the defenders and the psychiatric professionals and everybody talk about how we really don't have enough public resources for mental health right now. And, and that's, that's what we've been lacking for a long time. And that's the kind of thing that would keep this from happening again. Chris Clark, it seems like documentaries like this, as much as sometimes we might want to look away from it, um, it helps us understand better the place that we live and what some of the limitations in it are. Do you feel like people could come away from a movie like this ready to take action? Yes. And also that's part of, um, I'd like to mention that this screening is free. And we do a lot of harder, tougher topic human rights and sometimes environmental films and documentary shorts for free because it's more important for us to see these stories than to try and collect, you know, a ticket price for every single person. That would really mm -hmm. limit the amount of people because, you know, it's a fine film, but people wouldn't necessarily know that there. They would just read the description and say, oh, you know, that's not for me. But having it free, we get some underwriting to help make it possible, but it, it makes it more equitable to anyone of any means um, to you know, t be easier to take a chance on something like that, and it's been very successful. Tell us how that works for people who've never been to a film festival, and um, you know they might feel intimidated walking into one of these venues. Do you have to for a free showing? Do you have to have a, a pass ahead of time? What kind of logistics do people need to know? The only qualification 
to attend the St. Louis International Film Festival is, do you want to see a movie that day? That's the end of the list. In some cases, it requires a $14 ticket price. <laughs> but in, in this case, all of the screenings we're doing at Brown Hall on the campus of Washington University, all the screenings we're doing on both weekends, uh, also at the Missouri History Museum, are free and open to the public. Um, at the early rounds at the Tivoli during weekdays, the documentary shorts programs and documentary features uh, with environmental themes are all free. And people can just show up that yes. day. Um, we ask them to get a ticket from the box office. Sure. We just point to the box office and say, hey, just, just give Walk me a ticket. <laughs> and they'll give you a ticket. And, uh, you know, people, you know, again, we'd rather have more people see these films. Ben Jolie, that's kind of amazing. Um, I mean, what a great showcase for the work that filmmakers like you do, that people have literally no excuse not to come to one of these screenings. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think speaking as a filmmaker, um, it's really one of the most satisfying experiences and one of the best ways to, to have your work seen. I remember the first really great festival screening I had when I was right out of film school. Um, you know, I was in a room with like a couple hundred people. We were all watching my film. They were laughing when they were supposed to laugh. They were, you know, talking to me about it afterwards and asking questions. And I remember thinking, like, if I don't ever achieve anything else, if I don't ever make a dime off of making films, which is usually how it goes, this is enough. Like, this is fulfilling enough that I'll keep doing it for the rest of my life. And, and I have. And does that remain as important now when we're in this era of streaming? Anybody might be able to queue your film up um, using one of these services, and yet there's still something about seeing a movie with other people. Oh, yeah. There are fewer and fewer ways to engage your audience. And so much now, like, you put your film out there and people interacting with it, it's so, like, distant and remote, and you don't really have the feedback. And I think it really, I mean, you see a film so much differently when you're watching it with an audience. You know, for me... I'll, I'll cut something together and I'll watch it, you know, dozens of times. And then the first time I see it with other people in the room, it's like a different film, you know, and I suddenly am thinking about what they're seeing and like paying attention to the reactions. Then I have to go back and change it. And after the screening on Sunday, I guarantee I'm going to go back, make some notes, change the film again. Well, Ben Shawley, director of Through the Cracks, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having Your me. Your film just made me sob, so I hope it will um, have that impact on many people. This Good weekend. job, Ben. Way to <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> and we're also talking to Chris, Car Chris Clark of Cinema St. Louis. He'll be back with us after the break because we've got another documentary to discuss, and this one has a connection to Ballpark Village. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. Having its world premiere at the 28th annual Whitaker St. Louis International Film Festival is Throw a Billion Dollars from a Helicopter. It's also a film in the Show Me Cinema category, which showcases movies with strong Missouri ties. And that's even though it's set in Arlington, Texas. The film looks at a problem that affects cities from San Diego to Atlanta that's public financing for sports stadiums. By looking at a $1 billion deal to build a new stadium for the Texas Rangers, director Michael Burton exposes the funny numbers and clueless negotiations of municipalities aiming to attract or keep a professional sports franchise. But don't take my word for it. Let's just listen to a few of the experts interviewed in the film. It's hard to get economists to agree on anything. And one of the things that there is almost unanimous agreement on is that spending public money on sports stadiums tends to be a poor use of public funds. You can create jobs and some economic development by spending a billion dollars on a sports stadium, or you could just take the same amount of money and $20 bills, fly over a city in a helicopter and drop it out. The latter is going to give you far more jobs and economic development. 
Joining us by phone to discuss throw a billion dollars from a helicopter is Director Michael Burton. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me on. So I understand you're a journalist. What got you interested in making a film about this? Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) Um, uh, I studied economics both undergrad and graduate, and sort of, I was the kind of guy that had sort of the, I would have the the lease agreement between Paul Brown Stadium and the the city of Cincinnati or the deal that Miami had done with the Barlow City New Stadium. There were things that I just printed out and read in my free time, just sort of out of interest. Uh, This was a very sick hobby. Yeah, it's not even a hobby, though. It's just, uh, it's sort of one of those things, like, it it defies explanation when people sort of see it. So it's just something that I was kind of always interested in um, and had in the back of my head I would do something larger with at some point, and uh, it just turned out to be that a documentary is how that manifests itself. Hmm. So we're also talking today to Chris Clark, who's the Artistic Director of Cinema St. Louis. Chris, why this film for, for this year's festival? Um, I'm not a selector of the documentary features. Um, someone else in our office, our executive director, Cliff Fraley, is. But I can tell you, I can tell you this about this film. Um, we get films from a variety of sources, um, you know, big, splashy distributor studio films like Marriage Story. This was an open submission where we get this year. We had about 2,500 submissions from all over the world. Whoa. You know, shorts and features of um, 1,800 or 1,900 of those were short subjects. So Still, that's a that's lot a of, lot of, that. of submissions coming in. This was in. one of 250 or so documentary features that were submitted. And this, you know, rose to the top um, as being something that would be interesting and provocative, had local relevance. Uh, so it, it came from that interesting angle to the festival. So in this film, um, Michael, you visited St. Louis, and part of what you were looking at is the impact of Ballpark Village on downtown businesses. Joe Box, a 10, 11,000 square feet gone. Mike Shannon's, 10,000 square feet gone. Prime, 8,000 square feet gone. Dubliner, 7,500 square feet gone. Business was unbelievable. The numbers we were doing down here. So 2014 came along, started with probably the worst winter we've ever had, followed it up by the opening of Ballpark Village and then all the other dramatic events that happened in the city with Ferguson and all these other things. Um, And then the decline began. And it wasn't a, a, an easy decline. It was a hard, swift decline. A good night for us back then, uh, Friday night could be eighteen to 20,000, and a Saturday night could be 18,000. And when Ballpark Village opened up, we went from that figure, we dropped down to about 10, and then within 30 days, we were at about six and 7,000. So it, it was a big drop. So we went from 2.4 million down to... 1.6 million down to 1.3 million down to 900,000 and by that time it was you know the death knell forget fairness i don't know how it's legal because i'm collecting the money to pay guys that taking the money out of my community and and taking money that they don't need they were competing with us but yet they were getting tax dollars to do the, to do the job that was Eddie Neal, the owner of the Dubliner in downtown St. Louis, Amar Hawatama of the Copia Wine Bar downtown, and Harry Belly of Harry's Restaurant and Bar in downtown St. Louis. And all those places are now closed. Uh, Michael Burton, how did those stories fit into the story that you were telling about the stadium in Arlington? So uh, the city council in Arlington approved uh, a development called Texas Live, which is essentially the same thing as Ballpark Village. 
Even the same um, developer, right? It's it's Cordish Company. Cordish Company is exactly exact same developer. If you go inside, the layout is almost identical. Uh, it's got that big central room, and even where like the different sort of food places are on the sides are kind of identical locations, and even similar types of food. You know, there's taco place. There's Los Burdos, I think, in Ballpark Village. There's a taco place in the exact same position in Texas Live. Uh, anyway, so um, they had done that before they even announced the stadium deal, uh, or whether or not, not the stadium deal, whether they'd come to the agreement for the stadium was going to have to go for a vote. So before any of that even happened, they had done the deal for Texas Live. Mm-hmm. So Ballpark Village is kind of important in that it's sort of what's next uh, in terms of public financing of stadiums. It's not just we need tax dollars to build the stadium. All along, or in most cases, that was sort of pitched as a catalyst for growth, right? Well, when that growth didn't happen, then the owners just sort of said, well, subsidize us to this other thing, and then we'll just sort of make the growth happen anyway. Uh, so Ballpark Village has kind of been one of the first of those types of developments. We sort of look at then what happened to the place where there were actually local businesses that were kind of within earshot of the stadium and how that impacted them. Yeah, we used to always hear that it was important to give public dollars for stadiums because it would lead to bars and restaurants around the stadium doing well, that there'd be all these people coming to games. But you argue that a big part of the stadium game these days is that the sports owners, uh, the team owners, actually want to take all this revenue for themselves. And they're building things like Ballpark Village specifically so that not only are they getting what they get from the tickets, they're also the people selling us the drinks. Um, this seems like kind of a scary trend when you put it that way. Not for the sports team owner. It seems pretty great if you own the team. It's true. It's a sweet deal. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much whether it's scary or not. It's, it's basically giving people, citizens, good information to be able to make the decisions on how they want to spend their tax dollars, right? If you, if you sort of give them accurate information, and I think this is a kind of the subtext of the entire film. If you give them accurate information and let them make the choice, then that's, you know, whatever the outcome is, that's fine. They've expressed their preferences. Problem is, when you're not really giving them accurate information, then what does that say kind of about the political processes and the outcomes that, you know, sort of come out of the vote? It feels like in this film, you caught the mayor time and again, just saying things where he's flatly contradicted by the evidence, and yet he kind of keeps the smile on his face and and keeps... um, and frankly, you know, spoiler alert, they end up getting the public to approve this stadium. Were you surprised by that? Kind of. Uh, I think it was, it was strange being there because uh, I got there about five weeks before the actual vote. And I think at that time, everyone thought it was kind of a slam dunk for the Rangers. Even the internal polling for the vote yes pack was, was very heavily, you know, in the favor of the Rangers. But as it got closer, I think things seemed to get much tighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other polling, you know, there's, polling was kind of all over the place in terms of what the predictions were, uh, but the Rangers poured a ton of money in uh, toward the very end, indicating to me that they thought it was going to be much closer than it actually ended up being. Mm-hmm. And yet, despite the loss for the, the citizens trying to block this deal, your film does end on a somewhat hopeful note. Let's listen. Arlington is, 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 all, is the old world. Getting huge amounts of money from a city to build a baseball stadium or a, or a football stadium. It still exists in some places, but most of the new facilities do not have these kinds of huge public subsidies. Uh, and those that do sort of stick out. And I think the reason for it is that so many cities have gotten into financial difficulty. 
with massive studies. Cincinnati, Glendale, Arizona, and now we have the situation going on in, in Santa Clara where cities get into financial difficulty, particularly small cities, particularly suburbs, get into uh, financial difficulties if they buy, if they buy the Kool-Aid that somehow tax revenues generated by the, the facility itself plus the other businesses around it are going to offset the uh, cost of the stadium. We're going to pay for the stadium. It just doesn't happen. Uh, those are some of the experts in Throw a Billion Dollars from the Helicopter, which is playing in the St. Louis International Film Festival. Um, now, St. Louis said no to public financing for a major league soccer stadium a few years ago, and now instead we're getting one that's publicly funded. Do you think cities are finally realizing they have more of an upper hand in negotiations? Because uh, taxpayers are starting to say no. Taxpayers are starting to say no. Teams still have way more leverage over the cities. Uh, I mean, the balance hasn't shifted that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're sort rather than just direct cash subsidies, uh, you'll see more indirect subsidies, mm-hmm. um, which are, again, things like tax breaks, ancillary developments, you know, ballpark village type things. And now the phase two, I'm not sure at what level of construction has been completed there, but that's the residential mixed use going in next to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How far along are we there? Oh, it's it's you know it's under construction, but <laughs> um, just we just got a couple minutes here left. But but Chris Clark, I wanted to go back to you uh, for this film festival as a whole. This is just one of many films that have a strong local angle. Oh, absolutely, sure. So if people want more information about what to see and how to see it, uh, what should they do? Uh, everything is on our easily indexable website at cinemastlouis.org. We don't spell it the saint, so cinemastlouis.org. Go to the film festival pages. The program booklet is 144 pages of film-packed knowledge that are at the Tivoli and Plaza Frontenac, and we're out in the River and Times last week, so there might be stacks of them laying around, but something for everyone, to be sure. And as you were saying, people can just show up for one film at a time. They don't need to buy a pass or, Absolutely, or get yes. complicated. Okay. Chris Clark of Cinema St. Louis, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And Michael Burton of... Uh, 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 actually, we're out of time here. Sorry. Uh, Michael Burton of Throw a Billion Dollars from a Helicopter. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm sorry we've just run out of time. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.